In the early hours of the 28th of December 2017, a man who we will call Tarek was lying in his bed in his apartment in a suburb of Gothenburg, Sweden. He was waiting for his son to come home. The night before, he had come home at 3 o'clock in the morning and Tarek decided that he would try and stay awake until he knew that his son was home and safe. He was dozing off under the warmth of the duvet when he suddenly heard the front gate to the apartment block open and then close again. This noise the gate made was particularly loud, especially during the dead of the night, and Tarek was most definitely now awake. He then heard someone walking the five flights of stairs up to his apartment and the key being inserted into his front door. His son was home. Tarek stayed in his bed and waited for his son to walk by his door so that he could say goodnight to him before going back to sleep. But he seemed to be taking his time, which Tarek thought was a little odd. From his bed, he could see the hallway in his apartment. The front door was still open and a small slither of light shone through from the stairwell, illuminating Tarek's son in the process. He was acting very strange, going through the pockets of all the jackets hanging in the closet. Tarek's blood turned to ice when he realized that it wasn't his son who was standing there. It was a stranger who was quite clearly robbing them. He was in a state of sheer panic. He didn't know what to do. Should he stay still and wait in the hope that the intruder would soon leave? Or should he make his presence known in an attempt to scare the man off? He stayed under his duvet, trying to make the right decision. But when he realized that the intruder didn't seem to be in any kind of rush, he decided that he would try and scare him off. So he got up, turned the bedside cabinet light on and yelled, What are you doing? But the man didn't seem to be affected by Tarek's demand for an answer. Instead, he calmly walked towards him, pulled out a knife and said, Oh, I'm sorry, and then attacked him. Tarek tried to defend himself by throwing the duvet over the man in an attempt to disorientate him and soften the blows which were now raining down on him. In the struggle, they both fell onto the living room table. Tarek was doing all he could to avoid landing on his back, as he had came to the conclusion that if the knife-wielding attacker landed on top of him, then he probably wouldn't be able to fight him off. But it still didn't stop the man from getting to Tarek. He stabbed him several times, both on the front and back of his body. In a final attempt to try and save his life, Tarek tried to force his attacker into dropping the knife by biting him as hard as he could on the hand. And it worked. He bit him so hard that he heard something break. It was time for him to make his escape. He ran from the apartment to the stairwell and tried to call out for help, but no sound came out of his mouth. He couldn't scream. He looked down at his body. It was pierced with countless holes, holes which had blood pouring from them. He tried to scream again, but this time 
instead of any sound, there was only bubbles mixed with blood, which came from the stab wounds close to his heart. He was in a desperate state. He started to bang on his neighbor's door, hoping that someone would take him inside, away from this living nightmare. But nobody answered, and then suddenly, his attacker walked out of the apartment. But he didn't go after Tarek. He calmly walked by him and left the building via the stairs. Tarek was terrified and in a state of shock. He ran down the stairs and banged on all of his neighbor's doors until someone finally answered. The last thing he could remember was his neighbor telling him, I've got you, before he passed out in his arms. It wasn't long before the emergency services were on the scene. The police managed to obtain a description of the man. He was about 25 to 30 years of age, tall and had short blonde hair. A search of the immediate area was undertaken in the chance that the perpetrator was still close by. And as they searched for the attacker, the emergency services received a call from an apartment just 500 meters from Tarek's. The caller claimed that there was someone outside his front door messing with the lock and pulling on the handle in an attempt to gain access to the apartment. He said that the same thing had happened just a few days earlier. The intruder messed with the door for a period of time before seemingly giving up and leaving. And after supplying the police with a report of what had happened, the man suddenly ended the call. But about 30 minutes or so later, he called again, claiming that the man was back. He told the dispatcher that he was going to shout through the door to ask what the man wanted, and with that, the call was disconnected. Throughout the night and early hours of the morning, several calls were made to the police from the same building, all making the same claims. A man was walking around trying to gain entry to different apartments. In one of the flats lived an 83-year-old man who was sitting in his kitchen drinking his morning coffee. All of a sudden, he heard a loud crash coming from his living room. He rushed to see what could have happened and as he entered the room, he was met by a bloody man. The intruder had smashed the elderly man's balcony door in order to gain access to the property. Amongst the shards of glass lay a bread knife which the man must have dropped in the process of breaking in. Somehow, the old man managed to push the intruder out of the front door and into the stairwell area of the building before closing and locking it. The bloody man then ran up a flight of stairs and forced himself into yet another apartment, which he left after a period of time. Sometime later, he made his way out onto another residence balcony but this time, he slipped and fell from the 8th floor into the hard, cold ground below. He was rushed to the hospital, but his injuries were so severe that he died an hour or so later. The police quickly confirmed that the man who had attacked Tarek was the same man who just hours later had fallen to his death from the 8th floor balcony. 
And this information gave Tarek that little bit of comfort that he was so desperately in need of. At least he didn't have to worry about his attacker showing up at his house again in the future. Through time, he slowly tried to piece his life back together. He was prescribed medication to counter the pain he received from the nerve damage he now had as a consequence of the barbaric attack. Medication which he would more than likely have to take for the rest of his life. He was also regularly meeting a therapist to try and somehow mentally cope with the trauma of what he had been subjected to. But around three months or so after the attack, Tarek was approached by a journalist who was about to make a shocking revelation. He said to Tarek, Are you aware that your attacker wasn't the same man who fell from the balcony that night and that he is still alive? Tarek was taken completely by surprise at the journalist's revelation. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. In truth, the police had released information revealing that the man who fell from the balcony was in fact not Tarek's attacker just three days after his death, but had failed to inform Tarek personally. Fear and anxiety to grip of Tarek. He felt as though his living nightmare was back, back to finish what it had started. And not only was Tarek's attacker still out there, but he had also committed yet another attack. And this time, the outcome was even more brutal. This is Nordic True Crime. In the same area, roughly one kilometer from where Tarek stayed, lived a 31-year-old man called Eddie Svensson. He was a very talkative and happy-go-lucky kind of guy. And one day, when he, all of a sudden, failed to turn up for work and nobody could get a hold of him, his friends and family became very worried. Countless telephone calls were made to see if anyone had heard from him or if he had indicated to someone where he might be going. One of these phone calls was made by Eddie's cousin. He called Eddie's brother Johnny, who lived in another city, and asked him if he had spoken to Eddie recently. He had indeed spoke to him just two days prior to his disappearance, but didn't recall anything of note which could help them find him. Johnny then called Eddie's roommate David but it turned out that he had moved out of the shared apartment just a few days earlier and hadn't been in contact with his friend since then. However, he still had the key to the apartment, so he agreed to stop by and check in on Eddie. 
When David arrived at the apartment, he noticed that the door was unlocked. He slowly opened it and shouted on Eddie. There was no reply. The apartment was in complete darkness and eerily quiet. David flipped the switch for the light in the hallway, but nothing happened. He took a few more steps inside his former home and tried to turn on another lamp, but again, nothing. He went over to the fuse box and noticed that the main fuse had been switched off, so he flicked it back on and suddenly all the lights in the apartment lit up at once. And with that, the horrible scene of what had happened at the property was revealed to David in the blink of an eye. There was blood splatter all over the hallway and on the walls and the floors. David of course knew that something was terribly wrong and as he walked further into the apartment, he soon found his friend Eddie lying on the floor of the living room, face down in a pool of blood. He screamed his name but got no response. He phoned the emergency services the dispatcher asked him if Eddie was breathing, to which David replied he wasn't. He was then instructed to perform CPR on his friend until the ambulance arrived. But as soon as he touched Eddie, he could feel that he was cold and stiff, and he had quite clearly been dead for some time. Roughly 500 kilometers away, Eddie's brother Johnny received a call that nobody is ever prepared for. Despite he himself having previous experience of a similar horrible situation. Two years previous to the death of his brother, his sister had seemingly gone missing. She wasn't answering her phone or opening the door when friends and family came knocking. Sadly, she had passed away at home due to an incorrect dosage of her medication. And what made matters worse this time around was that this was the very same apartment in which Eddie had been found dead. History had somehow managed to repeat itself in the most unimaginable way. When the police arrived at the scene of the crime, they were met by David standing outside with one of Eddie's neighbors, who realized something was wrong when she saw a clearly in-shock David standing outside by himself on the street. She had rushed down with a blanket and held him until the police arrived. The detectives climbed the two flights of stairs to Eddie's apartment. On entering the property, they noticed the blood splatter in the hallway, which reached all the way into the living room where Eddie was lying on the floor next to his bed. There was stuff lying all over the floor and his mattress had been pulled from the bed. It looked as though someone had been frantically searching for something of some importance. Eddie was wearing pajama bottoms and slippers, but was bare from the waist up. He had what appeared to be puncture wounds on his back and arm, and he was surrounded by a pool of blood. But there was something else, something strange. On his back, someone, presumably the killer, had squirted a snake-like pattern of green fluid, which resembled a type of soapy liquid used to clean plates or cutlery. 
In fact, this green liquid had been squirted throughout various areas of the apartment, together with another clear liquid which smelled very much like lighter fluid. There was also an extension cord lying on the floor of the living room, which was covered in the suspected lighter fluid and the green soapy liquid. The police determined that the combination of the extension cord and the two liquids being in such close proximity to one another had more than likely been the cause of the power outage David was met with when he first entered the apartment. The police also found a lighter fluid bottle at the scene of the crime, but couldn't locate where the green fluid had originated from. Notably, no murder weapon was found. However, underneath some bags that were lying on the floor, they found a bloody shoe print. And since the blood had obviously dried before the bags were placed there, this proved that the mess in the apartment had happened sometime after the murder of Eddie. A clear indication that the murderer had stayed behind long after the attack in order to ransack the apartment. And yet another shoe print was found, this time in some of the green fluid on a paper pad that was lying on the floor. There were no signs at all of any forced entry to the apartment, so the detectives pondered over how the murderer had gained access. Could he or she have been let in voluntarily by Eddie? Was it perhaps someone he knew? David, Eddie's former flatmate, recalled an incident which had occurred three months prior to the murder. He had been on a night out in the city and had came home late. He pulled his jeans off, leaving them in the hallway before he went to bed. When he awoke the next morning, he noticed that his jeans were gone. David wasn't 100% sure that he had remembered to lock the door when he got home and he wondered if someone had possibly entered via the unlocked door during the night and stolen the trousers, which contained his credit cards, key card to his workplace, and his keys to the apartment. David immediately blocked all of his credit cards and told Eddie what had happened. He then received a spare key to the apartment in the meantime from the landlord until he had changed the lock to the front door but that never happened. After cancelling his credit cards, David called his work to block his key card. This card, according to his work's security system, was blocked at 8.11am on the 28th of December, which meant that the break-in would have had to have happened during the night between the 27th and the 28th, which was the very same night that Tarek was attacked in his apartment, only a few blocks away. The detectives managed to match the shoe prints to a certain well-known brand and model of shoe. But in truth, that was the only real significant evidence that they had. Both Eddie's neighbours and the public couldn't provide them with any valuable statements or witness testimonies resulting in a halt in progress in the hunt for Eddie's killer. Months passed by and no arrests had been made. Two months or so had passed since Eddie's funeral, 
when a 34-year-old father of a toddler, Mikkel Engberg, was out cycling in the street. Suddenly, a police car screeched to a halt in front of him, forcing him from his bike. He was arrested on the spot for a minor drug charge and was taken to the police station. But it didn't take long before the police discovered that Mikkel had previously been involved in much more serious crimes. To put it bluntly, he wasn't exactly unknown to the authorities. He had 19 convictions to his name, one of which involved breaking into an 80-year-old woman's apartment and attacking her with a knife after she discovered him going through her positions. And in 2017, he had been arrested for trying to break into a car, and in photographs taken by the police, he was seen to be wearing exactly the brand and model of shoe which matched the shoe prints found in Eddie's apartment. The police were unable to find the shoes in Mika's apartment, but they did find drops of blood on one of his jackets hanging in the hallway, blood which belonged to Tarek. But Mikkel denied having anything to do with any of the burglaries or attacks. He also claimed that the jacket wasn't his, stating that it belonged to one of his friends. But at the same time, he refused to reveal exactly who it belonged to, as, in his words, he didn't want to snitch on anyone. The fluids, which had been sprayed all over Eddie and his apartment, were more than likely, according to the police, used in such a manner to try and get rid of any evidence. However, since this also caused a power cut when the liquids mixed with the electrical element of the extension cord, the police could, with the help of the electricity meter, determine exactly when this had occurred and it was therefore determined that Eddie was murdered on the 28th of March, and his body lay there for two days before being discovered by David when he entered the property to check on his friend. The police also found a mobile phone at Mikkel's apartment, and on checking the internet history they found a search for knife stabbing in Höxbo, Höxbo being the area of Gothenburg where Eddie lived. This was the smoking gun the police were looking for. Because after all, why would Mikkel make a search like this before the news of the murder had made the newspapers? Mikkel, however, continued the charade of claiming to having nothing to do with anything related to the murder. He said that it wasn't him who made the search on the mobile phone and laid the blame on another individual that he, once again, refused to name. He explained that since he was dealing drugs, particularly to finance his own addiction, there was always a steady flow of people filtering in and out of his apartment. He also said that it was often the case that stabbings and other gruesome crimes were an accepted part of that underworld, and more often than not, these incidents would go unreported to the police insinuating that the murder may well have been a drug deal gone wrong. However, more evidence was to come to light, evidence he surely wouldn't be able to explain. Mikael's fingerprint was found on the bottle of lighter fluid 
found inside Eddie's apartment. But once again, he claimed that he was totally innocent, stating that the real murderer must have found a bottle at one of the barbecue spots nearby where Mikkel would sometimes eat with friends, and then brought it to the crime scene. In what must have been a massive step for him to overcome, Tarek managed to testify in court. He said that his whole life had changed in the aftermath of the attack. He had problems sleeping and constantly relived the brutal attack in his head. He was in constant pain and was plagued with anxiety, which made him suffer from mood swings, which affected his relationship with his whole family. He couldn't stop thinking about what would have happened if he would have been sleeping when Mikkel entered the apartment. Would he have faced the same fate as Eddie? Why had he managed to survive when poor Eddie hadn't? Tarek stated that there was no question that Mikkel was the same man who had attacked him in his own home. He said that he would never forget those eyes. On the 4th of February 2019, Mikkel Engberg was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Eddie Svensson and the attempted murder of Tarek. It was never established whether or not Mikkel actually had obtained keys to the different apartments or if he had picked the locks on the doors. In the days preceding the murder of his brother, Johnny woke up and turned on the TV. There was a morning TV show on, and the presenters were talking away, joking with each other. In his mind, he couldn't understand how anyone could be happy, not since the terrible thing had happened to both him and his family. But sometime after the murder, Johnny discovered that Eddie had bought tickets to a stand-up show, which he was really looking forward to seeing. That was his kind of thing. Eddie loved watching stand-up shows. So to honor their beloved brother and friend, Johnny, his family and Eddie's friends went to the stand-up show which he had bought tickets for. And after the show, together they visited his favorite pubs and cafes across the city in tribute to him. At the funeral, there wasn't an empty seat. There was lots of tears but just as much laughter when together they reminisced about the things that Eddie had done and said. His ability to always have a positive outlook on life was celebrated. When the service was over, they went out for some food and beer close to the football stadium of his favorite team, IFK Gothenburg. The celebration of Eddie's life continued into the night. His friends and family boarded a party bus they had rented for the evening, which drove them all around the city. The bus sound system even played a clip from when Eddie had phoned a radio station where he told a funny story about when he had dyed his hair. It made them all feel like he was still there with them. And in a way, he was. It really was a fitting tribute to a valued friend and brother whose life had been so cruelly taken away. <laughs>